Thank you very much, and thank you to the choir and the orchestra this morning for lifting our hearts with that. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, and then Mark in the first chapter. I'm going to be reading a portion of this as our text, but we will be coming to that, and it probably will be at least halfway through the message this morning before we do, because this morning we are going to begin a new series, and that series will be in this gospel, the gospel of Mark. And what I would like to do is give a portion of our message time this morning to answering the question of why a gospel at this particular time in the life of our church and what our approach is going to be to that. In fact, if you look in your worship guide, uh, those two matters comprise the title for the sermon this morning, Why a Gospel and What Our Approach, the Gospel of Mark. Why a gospel? Why in the life of our church at this time to do this now for a Lord's Day morning series? Well, I've given a lot of thought to that in the last few months. And the first thing that occurred to me and that stayed with me is that in a great sense, it's simply a matter of being responsive to the Spirit of God responsiveness to the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about my responding individually to a sense of prompting about it, although I have had that, and I will share some of that a little later. But I'm really talking about the matter of what the Holy Spirit has done objectively in the Bible that He has given to us. And what is apparent is that it is his purpose to keep his people occupied with the Gospels. Or you could say singular, with the Gospel. You open your New Testament, and the first thing that you do is read a Gospel. And when you complete that, there is a second. And when you finish it, there is a third. When you complete the third there is a fourth. It's apparent that the Spirit of God Himself, who breathed these Scriptures out, intends to keep the Lord's people occupied with the Gospel. And what it amounts to is this, that the Gospels comprise, evidently, just from the structure that you have in your New Testament, they comprise this broad foundation for everything else that is going to follow that. There are 260 chapters in our New Testament, and 89 of them are in the Gospels. In fact, if you count the words in your New American Standard Bible, and it would be roughly the case, I'm sure, in any translation, right about 45% of all of the words in the New Testament are in these four books, out of the 27 books. The Gospels are this broad foundation. But what is really fascinating about it is that that foundation is not one, it's four. It's, as it were, layered 
So that the way it works by the Spirit of God's design is this, that you read the first of the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, and you become acquainted with what you have there foundationally all the way from the top to the bottom. And when you finish with all of that, you discover that there's a second Gospel. So you read it, and what your anticipation might be is that the second would extend the first one that it would be additional material, that it would be, for instance, like the projections of a telescope where you've read the first and now the second takes you further, then there's a third, it'll take you further yet, fourth, it'll take you further yet. But when you read them, you discover that that's not the case at all, that the second one goes right back over all the same territory, pretty much, and the third one does the same thing, and the fourth one does the same thing, top to bottom. There are some variations between them, not contradictions in any way, but there are variations in the sense that some of them omit what others include, or some of them add additional material. And yet the point is that again and again, you read the same material. And that's especially the case with the Gospel of Mark. About 90% of what you have in Mark is in the other Gospels. In other words, you can think of it rather vividly this way. If we lost the Gospel of Mark, we essentially only lose 10% of the content. Now that is all by the Spirit of God's design. It means that we can be sure without having to be told explicitly, but being shown unmistakably that we are supposed to read the gospel again and again and again. The Spirit of God constrains us to do that, like having the same meal several times a month or even several times a week. Little variation, of course, but it's basically the same meat and potatoes and healthy green vegetable. And so, as an individual Christian and as a church, too, this is a matter of responsiveness to the Spirit of God to give frequent attention to the Gospels. And yet, and this brings me to this secondly, when it comes to why we're doing it. When it comes to the life of our church, I really was taken back when I went back through my files and discovered that it has been 14 years since we went through a gospel top to bottom. 14 years. We finished the Gospel of Matthew on August 15th, 2010. Now, we have had other sermon series in which we have given extensive attention to portions of one or the other of the Gospels, so it isn't that we've neglected them entirely. But I began to think about that. That means that our children have never gone through a Gospel top to bottom in our preaching services here. And we have new people, of course. There may be people who have come into our church since all of that was finished and you in all of your Christian life have never heard a gospel preached from the beginning to the end. Our church has a need. It's long overdue, is my point, in the life of our church. But thirdly, and I want to go deeper with this, 
As I have given pretty extensive consideration to this matter of what to be occupied with on Lord's Day mornings, I've also been impressed with the fact that the Gospels are the Godheads. I'm talking now about all three members of the Godhead, the Trinity. The Gospels are the Godhead's way of acquainting us with themselves in their Trinitarian work on our behalf. All three members of the Godhead are referred to and appear on the pages of our Old Testament. That's true. But it is when we come to the Gospels that we begin to really see the members of the Godhead in their relations and working with one another in the ways that the gospel is occupied with and assuring us about. You see it right in the text that we're going to read this morning. It's in the very first chapter of Mark. All three of them are right there. There's no mistaking them. Nobody has to say, now, There's a reference to God here, and I wonder which member of the Godhead it is, or if there even is more than one member of the Godhead. In other words, if you were a Jewish reader of the text that we're going to read this morning, it would be very apparent to you that the text is asserting there are three members to the Godhead. And from the very beginning, here is the way they were interacting. And you know, of course, that we were told by our Lord in the upper room discourse of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in order that the disciples would understand the significance of this, the Lord said to them that what the Spirit of God was going to do when he came was to testify of Jesus Christ and glorify him. Well, Christ ascends to heaven and the Spirit of God comes. And how did he testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, you see him testifying to Christ through miraculous signs and through the empowerment of the apostles and the first century preachers. But the primary thing that he did is breathe out the New Testament. And when he did it, he breathed out four gospels testifying to Jesus Christ and glorifying Jesus Christ. And from the very beginning, we were told in the Gospels themselves when we read them that the Lord Jesus Christ came, He is the eternal Word, and that when He came, He came in flesh, and that as the only begotten Son of God in flesh, He came to exegete the Father. That is said explicitly in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. He has declared him, the King James Version says, and the word is exegete. He is the great exposition of the Father. And we don't understand that when we read the Gospels, at least we don't understand it in its fullness at all. And you remember, of course, that the disciples themselves were not fully grasping of that. So that in that same upper room discourse that I've mentioned to you, it's recorded that our Lord said to them that they had known the Father and they'd seen the Father. 
And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. That would suffice us. And the Lord's response to that is, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and yet you've not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's what the Gospels display to us, folks. The Godhead. God in Christ. In flesh. But the Father in Him and He in the Father. And He is so clear and dogmatic on this point throughout His ministry He said he could do nothing but what he saw the Father do. What you and I read in the Gospels of the doings of Jesus Christ are the doings of the Father. And that is because, as the Apostle Paul explains, Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.15, is the image of of the invisible God. God is a spirit. No man has seen him at any time. Great is the mystery of, of our godliness, our coming to godliness, the mystery. God, the invisible God, manifest in the flesh. And Paul goes on in Colossians and can say, in Him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. These gospels that are the foundation of all the new covenant that God has made with His people through the blood of Jesus Christ which we tonight will remember in our observance of the Lord's table. This new covenant has this broad foundation. The foundation is repeated again and again and again. It is the Holy Spirit's design that we be occupied with it, that we read it from top to bottom. And when we do, it isn't just a matter of seeing Christ as the Son of Mary who then in the end died in our place physically. It is the Godhead acquainting us with themselves. You know, folks, that's so easily missed for us as readers of the Bible. I was reading a book on preaching a couple of weeks ago, and I actually wasn't reading it from the beginning, first page, right through to the end. I was dipping into it here and then, just there for just a little inspiration and encouragement. And my fell upon a personal anecdote that the author gave. He said that he has a friend who is also a pastor and he's an author. And his friend was traveling overseas and he went into a bookstore and discovered that they were marketing several of his titles. And so he walked up to the table on which they were being displayed and flipped one over because he wanted to see what they were charging for these. And the clerk who was there observed him doing that and came over and asked him if he knew the author. And he said, yes, he thought that he did. And the, and the clerk responded that he knew him as well. 
And the, the, the fellow said, actually, I don't think that you do. Because if you did know him, you would have greeted him when you came in your door because I'm the author. And the clerk was embarrassed. His face went red and he spluttered. He said, but, but I've, I, I've read your book. I feel like I know you. And this man said, and you hope that he said it somewhat graciously, you may have read my book, but you don't know me. That can happen to Christian people who read the Bible repeatedly and the Gospels, but they don't know Jesus Christ very well. Now, if you don't know him at all, then the great tragedy that you're facing, unless that changes, is what our Lord foretells when he speaks of people who will stand before him at the end, and they will claim that this and that, on behalf of his name, read the Bible, preached even, and he'll say, I never knew you. We want to read the Gospels, and part of our reason for giving attention to a Gospel now is that we might better know the Lord. Why a Gospel? Because of the Holy Spirit's own design, responsiveness to Him, and because it's really time in the life of our church, past time, and because of what the Godhead intends happened to us when we read these Gospels and understand them well, that we come to know the Godhead, the Father and Christ through this acquaintance that we have with this material. And then lastly, I'll just speak very personally about this. I have for some time been giving really, truly very prayerful thought to the matter of what we ought to do on Lord's Day mornings. I realize that it's wasn't going to be too long before we'd finish the series that we were in. And uh, Pastor Newton and I have discussed the uh, future preaching here and talked about what we might do, what he might do, what I might do in the series that we're dealing with right now. And I actually had communicated to him several other things that were on my heart that I'd already given some attention to, one of them extensively last fall. And uh, this spring, the Gospel of Mark came to my attention through something that I was reading, and it just seemed like there was a little spark, and so I began to do a little devotional reading it for myself, and was blessed, and it just, my mind actually began to fill up with thoughts about matters to be preached from what I was reading. And about a month ago, I took three days and went away for those days to a little cabin in the mountains and gave two full days to exploring the possibility of our giving attention to this gospel. And it just, you know, I, I know, at least I feel confident that I'm being led of the Lord when my mind cannot get away from something. And when it just seems to be filled again and again with thought about a particular section of Scripture or a topic. So I feel very confident that 
this is what the Lord would have for us to do. Now, I want to speak to you secondly about our approach to it. You may be aware that the gospel of Mark shows us our Lord at His most active. There's only one major sermon in it. That's the 13th chapter, which is the Olivet Discourse. And that one is much shorter than what you have, for instance, in Matthew. In other words, this is not a gospel in which we are going to find uh, the great majority of our Lord's preaching and teaching ministry. It is omitted in this gospel. But when it comes to the deeds, the doings of our Lord, the gospel really is occupied with those. If you compare the four Gospels, it's apparent that during our Lord's earthly lifetime that He performed literally thousands of miraculous deeds for people. That has to be the case because you have these cluster passages that will tell us that He would go into a certain region or into a certain city and He would heal all their sick and cast out all their demons. And he's doing this repeatedly in place after place after place, particularly in his Galilean ministry. But the Spirit of God has chosen to single out for the reading of God's people through the centuries, he's chosen to single out about 35 of those. Mark's gospel contains 18 of them. And I won't give you the statistics. I won't take time to do that. You could run them for yourself. But that is a far larger percentage per chapter than any other gospel. I'm talking about far larger. The Spirit of God has chosen to give us a gospel that sets before us primarily our Lord in His miraculous activity like that. Now, I'm saying that in order to move us toward an explanation of our approach. Very often, churches and individuals like us are like the crowds in the gospels when they saw those miracles. We find it that when they saw what he could do and when they experienced it, they were interested in more of that. And that they would throng him in the interest of receiving something materially and physically. We could, and many times, unfortunately, we probably do, read a gospel for the same reason and nothing more. There's a storm in our life. We have a bill to pay. Someone whom we love is sick. And we go to the gospels. And we read of what he did. And we draw the application to ourselves. Is that right or wrong? 
It's not wrong. Jesus did those things for people and he does them today. And there were times in the Gospels when he would call attention to the fact that what he was doing, actually he had been sent to do. And in the end, uh, you read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he's going to take away all our diseases. But folks, the Lord himself, it's recorded in the 6th chapter of John after he fed the 5,000 men and women and children in addition. And they, the next day, followed him all around the top half of the Sea of Galilee to find him. He said to them, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, what he's getting at is, you knew I did something miraculous for you, but you did not see what actually I was showing you. You're seeking me not because you saw, but because I fed you. And then our Lord corrected that when he said, don't do this. Don't work for the food which perishes. Now he wasn't saying don't go out tomorrow morning and put in a good long day's work in order to meet your physical needs. You understand that. He was talking about your preoccupation and particularly the labor that you would go to to associate yourself with Him. When you come to me and really in the totality of your life, don't be working for perishing food. What you need to be working for is the food that endures to eternal life that I will give you. And folks, that means this, that in our approach to the Gospels, number one, we want to definitely hear and see what he intended. We have a great advantage of that because we have the epistles. And the epistles take what we have in the Gospels and weave it together. Someone said that the four Gospels provide the wool and that the Apostle Paul particularly weaves the garment. We have the the epistles to help us really understand what we're supposed to see and hear in this. But my You can see that my burden at the front here, folks, is that when we go through these in a gospel that is primarily occupied with the miraculous activities of our Lord and then His redemptive work, that we don't week after week primarily come in order to receive something to just sort of help us gut it out through another week in this fallen world and have our needs met that we really are seeing what he intends. And secondly, in our approach, 
What I would like to do is focus upon Mark individually. And what I mean by that is this. One of the wonderful tools that I would hope that every Christian household represented here has in its library, and you may not yet, so let me just express my hope and desire for you. And that is that you would have in your own home library a harmony of the Gospels. It's a tremendous benefit to be able to compare Gospel accounts and actually in some cases to do so very, very carefully and to see various things that one or more Gospel writers includes or that he emphasizes even by the way he arranges the material or by what he says repeatedly that nobody else says. We're going to see an example of that in our text this morning. When you preach and teach a gospel, you find that to be so rich that very often a lot of your work in the study and then the content of your messages consists of those kinds of comparatives. And I've done a lot of that through the years. But what I would like to do this time is not so much of that. Not so much comparatively. But really giving more attention to Mark individually. There are only about four passages in Mark that aren't found in other Gospels. <clears throat> and when I mentioned to you that we'd only lose about 10% if we lost the Gospel of Mark, those four passages are in it. And then there are some words that are scattered here and there elsewhere. Somebody's done the tabulations on this, and their estimate is that there are probably only about 50 words in Mark that are not found in the other Gospels. What I would like to do is to try to go through and really give um, the individuality of this gospel the highlight. As if we were in, we're not, but as if we were first century Christians and this is the only gospel we have. And that was the case for, as you can well imagine, thousands of first century Christians and many, many of the Lord's people from that point on. They would only have one gospel if they had anything at all. Let's put ourselves in the position of first century Christians, the latter half of the first century, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, after Christ's ascension to heaven. We've got, we, we've got Mark. What are we supposed to see of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Father? I want to give that attention primarily. And then thirdly in our approach, and this almost sounds a little bit contradictory to what I just said, that we want to look at the Gospel of Mark and as if it's the only Gospel we have and it's sufficient, okay? And yet what I would, what I anticipate I can't guarantee this, all right? So please, you know, if I vary from this, it'll be okay, right? But 
my anticipation is of being a little bit selective. Not necessarily the entire book, certainly not the entire book, but the same kind of exposition. I would like sometimes to do what we call, and what, what generally I do is spade work, and that's some depth. <clears throat> but I like to do some plow work as well. And in some sense, that will be the case this morning with the text that we have. So that's why we're going to give attention to a gospel, and I hope that your own spirit <clears throat> rises to that, and that's the approach that we will take on that matter. We want to hear and see more than just simply the meeting of physical necessities. When we go through all of those miracles, we want to focus on Mark individually and somewhat selectively even in those contents. Now thirdly and lastly this morning, I want to bring us to our text. We're going to read the first 15 verses of this gospel. And what we want to do is hear what the Spirit of God is wanting us to take in. What are we supposed to hear this morning? Let's read it together. The Gospel according to Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, those 15 verses span 
from the beginning of the preaching of John the Baptist to the beginning of the preaching of Jesus Christ. They span that period of time. From the beginning of John's preaching to the beginning of Jesus' preaching. They span it in 15 verses. Now I want to call your attention to one word. Verse 1. The beginning of, and I'd underline this word, of the gospel. Gospel is the word I'd underline. Now look at the last word of the text that we read. The last word of verse 15. Gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the verse just immediately preceding, verse 14, that tells us of the beginning of Christ's preaching, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Three times in 15 verses in that span, this gospel mentions the gospel, speaks of it. It opens, the section opens and it closes with that. Now, here's where I am going to do a comparative. In Matthew's gospel, he uses over twice the amount of material to cover that same span. Over twice as many verses. And in that twice as many verses, he does not use the word gospel at all. The Gospel of Luke uses over three times the number of verses and uses the word gospel one time. And John, who's got whole chapters, doesn't mention it at all. Now folks, what that does is mean that if you had this gospel alone and you read those first 15 verses and you read them again and you read them several times and you ask yourself, what am I really being presented with here? You can see that there is a deliberate emphasis to call that to your attention. Why is that important and what does that mean? You know, sometimes it really helps to get a different vantage point than your own in your own day, with your own background and your own knowledge and experience. It helps to put yourself in a different position. For instance, folks, <clears throat> I said, let's, let's throw ourselves back into the first century and this is the only gospel you have. Well, let me fast forward us, though, to a period of time when all the gospels exist. It's just that you can't read them because they're not translated into your language. And that still is the case with, as you know, certain people groups in the world today. You're aware of the fact that it was only in the early 16th century, the early 1500s, that finally the New Testament was being printed in English. And the man who made that possible was this man, William Tyndale. Tyndale was aware of the fact that because people had never had the New Testament printed like that and widely distributed because of the invention of the printing press, um, 
he was aware of the fact that people needed an introduction to what they're reading. And so he did a prologue to his New Testament, and he would introduce what they were going to be confronted with. And one of the things that Tyndale gave some emphasis to was this particular word. And he started out in his prologue by saying, first of all, this is a Greek word. You've got to understand that what you're reading is an English word, but there's a Greek word underneath this. And Tyndale said that word signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing and dance and leap for joy. Now folks, just, just imagine that you had not been in a circumstance where all, nearly all of your life you'd heard people say the word gospel means, means what? Two words, means, okay. But what you're, here, what you're reading now is a man saying to you, what this word is getting at is something that is such joyful tidings that if you really get a hold of it, you're going to want to leap and dance for joy. That is how overwhelmingly good it is. And Tyndale gave them an illustration. He said, this is like the news that came back to Israel that David had killed Goliath. And all of these people find out that their fearful and cruel enemy was slain. And in their gladness, they sang and danced and they were joyful. Tyndale said, in like manner, the evangelion of God, the gospel of God, which we call the New Testament, is joyful tidings. And as some say, a good message declared by the apostles throughout all the world of Christ, the right David who fought with sin and death and the devil and overcame them. And by this, everyone who was wounded with death and overcome by the devil is now without his own merit or desert. He's loosed and justified and restored to life and he's saved. And they're brought to liberty and reconciled to the favor of God. And those who believe these tidings praise and thank God and are glad and they sing and they dance for joy. That's really the spirit of it. That it's hard for us sometimes to recapture. Now, Tyndale is not suggesting that we turn our worship services into a dance. And he's obviously not talking about distracting one another in a service like this by some exuberant individual display. But what he's getting at is what the Spirit of God intends And what the whole message brings, if you've ever really known yourself to be a captive. A captive. Where you have found it in yourself that you can't. You absolutely can't. You've come under conviction that certain things aren't right. Your conscience that perhaps for many, many years has been hardened and insensitive and all of a sudden God has so gently and graciously worked in your life that you're tender again. 
And there's this great sympathy in your heart for what your self-centered behavior has actually been costing to the people that you most love. The burden that they're bearing because of you, because of your disposition, because of your ways. The number of times that you've reduced them to tears. The fact that some of them who know Christ actually go to God and talk about you to God. And your heart is softened. And you need some help. And the Bible comes to you and says, this is the beginning of the news that will make you leap and dance for joy. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Folks, you think of Tyndale and his whole circle of friends. And these men are meeting in a little, we would call it a cafe or a little restaurant. They're meeting in a little restaurant in Cambridge. Many of them are students. And they have come to taste of the Word of God. And there's this whole circle of them. But you give it just a few years. And nearly every one of Tyndale's close associates dies for this. And they die very, very difficult deaths. They're burned for their belief in what this says. You go right through that list of names. It's just incredible. John Rogers, who was the very first of the ministers that was burnt by Bloody Mary. John Frith, William Bradford, John Hooper, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer. They're all burnt. Tyndale himself was strangled and burnt. And when you read their writings, their letters from prison and to one another, but particularly the accounts of their coming to Christ, you realize that the reason that they were prepared to be tied, bolted, or banded to a stake and to literally be consumed to ash in flames wasn't just primarily because they were intellectually persuaded. And so there was this dogged, I can do no other because my brain has been persuaded. Their brains were persuaded. But they were at the stake because they had found joy. They had found the total satisfaction of all of their need in Christ. They had found the love of God the joy of the Holy Spirit, the peace for their spirits that their hearts never had. You read the accounts, all of these men had been Roman Catholic clerics. They were like Luther. And their life as Roman Catholics trying to achieve favor with God was a very hard life. And they lived under this terrific shadow and insecurity of never being confident that they had ever done enough or could do enough to ever pay for their sin and somehow elevate themselves in the, in the eyes of the Lord. 
It was a bondage, a fierce and cruel kind of labor. And when they found the gospel, it was like the prison doors were thrown open and they were free. Christ did it all. The Son of God bore it all. He bore the punishment in my place. There's nothing for me to have to bear. All my sin can be completely scrubbed out, wiped out, annihilated, so that God remembers it against me no more forever. And it's all because He sent His own Son in flesh, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Dear people, we are very weak. And our lives are very short. And our sins are very many. And our guilt is very great. And we are helpless to do anything about it ourselves. And our friends and family are powerless. Love us as they may. And as time goes on, many people find that their friends and even their family finally drift away and desert them and want very little to do with them. Think of how many people in the world today are essentially friendless or completely estranged from their families. What does everybody need? We need a great Savior. We need to be saved. And God sent His Son to do it. And this is the gospel of it. This is the joyful tidings. And my trust and my joy is that every week we'll taste a little of that. The goals that we have for this new year are that we might increase in love and joy and peace. And by the grace of God, week after week, there'll be something that will add to our joy and give us peace. Let's turn in our hymn books to the very first hymn that is in it. I told Brother Sam this morning before we came out on the platform that we were going to do something we normally don't do, and that is that we're going to end the service with an anthem. This is the kind of number that you typically begin a service with in service planning. This is an anthem, and it was written by Charles Wesley, and when you read the account of his coming to Christ and his brother John, it was a time of tremendous exuberance on their part. And it's out of that that he writes this. Look at the title. I wish I had a thousand tongues to be able to sing of this. That sounds like a man filled with the joy. And we're going to sing this, sing it as it stands. There is one stanza that is not part of this particular text, and that is the stanza that we have with number 69 in our hymn book. If you turn to 69, I'd like you to keep a hand there if you would. In 69, we have the text without a tune, and there is the fifth stanza. And what I would like for us to do when we finish with number one is to turn right to, seamlessly, 69 and sing that fifth stanza that ends with, Leap ye lame for joy. We'll end that way this morning. Let's stand together and sing.
look at stanza four. Let's read those words. He breaks the power of canceled sin. What does that mean? The Bible says that all of our sin and the penalty that we're going to have to pay for living a whole life of sinning against God. You say, I don't think I do that. I think I'm a good person. But if you're living for yourself and not God, that is sin. That is the greatest sin. Because we do not belong to ourselves. We can't keep ourselves alive for a second. We belong to God. He made us. Every single thing we own is God's. Our wife is God's. Our children are God's. Our home is God's. Our earth is God's. Yeah. The, the sky, the sea, the air, our molecules, they're all God's. Amen. People who live without God are the greatest thieves in history. And there will come a day of reckoning when God calls for his own. And what the New Testament says is that Jesus Christ took all of those charges that are written against us like a legal accusation. He took them all, nailed them to his cross, and paid the price for all of them. So the sin's canceled. Now, that sin, folks, is like a power in our lives, and we're helpless to break it. Jesus Christ breaks the power of that canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. I'm not talking about people down in the detention center. It's talking about being a prisoner to our own selfish ways, our sin. He sets us free from all of that. And His blood can make the foulest clean. How foul sin can be. Detestable, loathsome. Jesus' blood washes it white as snow. Does that? Let's sing that stanza and then let's go to 69. Thank you.
for singing that so with all your hearts. Gracious Lord, send us to our homes now, we pray, with this joy possessing us. And we ask that you would grant repentance and faith to men and women, young people, in this congregation and all across the world today who need to know true joy in Christ. And we ask it in his blessed name. Amen.